and I'm looking forward to sharing with you some, some work in the space of microfinance and, and health. Uh, I am the founder and executive director of something called the Chalmers Center at Covenant College. We are a church-equipping organization. It's our goal that the poor would see the local church, or by extension, missionary, as what the scripture says the local church is, the body, bride, and fullness of Jesus Christ, to declare the good news of his kingdom in words and in deeds amongst the poor. We don't want poor people to ever hear of the Chalmers Center. Rather, we want them to see the local church as Jesus. And so towards that end, what we do is we try to figure out strategies that churches can use to help the poor to help themselves through their own work. We then field test various kinds of strategies. Then out of those field tests, we train churches to use those strategies on their own. And for about 15 years, we've been very involved in the space of microfinance. So I'm going to talk to you today about microfinance and try to interface it a bit with issues of health and health education. I'm not an expert on that, but perhaps I can give you a push in a certain direction so that you can then go on and learn more on your own. Somehow I lost my clicker uh, between last night and this morning, and it's like a security blanket. So without my clicker, I'm completely lost. So if I look extremely insecure, it's because I don't have my clicker. As many of you might know, there's an intimate relationship between poverty, finance, and health. Now, now a lot of you probably are familiar with that one interface of poverty and health. You might have a little less exposure to the finance part of it. But these three things are very related. If a person is poor, they're typically going to have poor health for a variety of reasons. And if a person has poor health it will contribute to poverty. So that that link you're probably a bit familiar with. What you might be less familiar with, I'm just guessing, is the link to finance. Poor people need access to financial services. Things like banks. Poor people need access to banking services. In fact, they actually need access to banking services more than the people in this room. That's one of the ironies of the field of finance, is that the poorest people on the planet who are living on less than $2 a day, sometimes on less than $1 a day, actually need access to financial services on a daily basis more than most wealthy people do. And that's because of this. We hear that poor people live on a dollar a day. That's not really true. They live on $4 one day and $0.05 the next day. In addition to their incomes being very low, their incomes are highly variable and unpredictable. And so a significant portion of their lives are spent trying to manage these crazy cash flows. Because without cash, bad things happen. Kids don't get fed. Medicine doesn't get purchased. There's not food on the table. And so they are managing cash flows to a higher degree than most of us are. There's a tremendous book called Portfolios of the Poor 
that came out a number of years ago that I would highly recommend to you, Portfolios of the Poor, which documents this. I mean, it's a, the, the title's kind of crazy, isn't it? Portfolios of the Poor. The reality of it is the poor are engaged in financial management, in managing portfolios, more so than most of us are on a regular basis. But what's in their portfolio are not stocks and bonds. What's in their portfolio are jewelry and cash under a mattress and cash deposited with a cousin and loans from a money lender and a goat. They're managing portfolios to deal with these incomes that are highly irregular and unpredictable. And the relationship of that to poverty and health is substantial. Here's a little, just a little anecdote from a book called uh, uh, Poor Economics, which may be a statement of the entire discipline that I'm part of. Uh, it's a great book. And, and listen to this little story. In a village in Indonesia, uh, the people speaking are the authors of the book. In a village in Indonesia, we met Ibu the wife of a basket weaver. A few years before our first meeting, her husband was having trouble with his vision and could no longer work. She had no choice but to borrow money from the local money lender, about $18.75, to pay for medicine so, so that her husband could work again, and $56 for food for the period when her husband was recovering and could not work. They had to pay 10% per month in interest on the loan. However, they fell behind on their interest payments. By the time we met her, her debt had ballooned to $187. The money lender was threatening to take everything that they had. So you can start to see how poverty and health and finance are all connected here. To make matters worse, one of her younger sons had recently been diagnosed with severe asthma. Because the family was already mired in debt, she could not afford the medicine needed to treat his condition. He sat with us throughout our visit, coughing every few minutes. He was no longer able to attend school regularly. The family seemed to be caught in a classic poverty trap. The father's illness made them poor, which is why the child stayed sick. And because he was too sick to get a proper education, poverty loomed in his future. It's all connected. It's all related. Because poverty is multifaceted, we need multifaceted interventions to try to address the different dimensions as much as possible. Microfinance, microfinance is trying to address some of this by providing financial services. Think of like banks. Banking kind of services. We'll get into this a little bit more in a minute. Try and provide banking services I believe, and the literature suggests, that this can contribute to better health through reducing poverty, which improves health. Many of us are already familiar with that linkage. Offering health insurance. As Americans, we have very successfully created health insurance, so we should export ours to the rest of the world. There's a little joke in there. (laughs) Enabling people to finance health care. You kind of saw that in that little vignette. You need to pay for medicine or for doctor's care. You need money in order to do that. Helping to cushion the effects of an illness. We saw that in that little vignette. When a husband can't work, you've got to put food on the table. You need finance to be able to do that. 
and then also providing a forum for health education. Microfinance interventions also can be integrated with community health education. So we're going to explore all of those things uh, here together. A little bit of background. Poor people in the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, like all of us, need lump sums of money. Now, a lump sum of money is a wad of money. It's a very technical term I just made up. A lump sum of money is a wad of money that is in excess, that is in excess of what one has in their pocket. A lump sum of money is a wad of money that is in excess of what one has in one's pocket. We all need lump sums of money for four main categories. Investment opportunities for business. How many of you have heard of Muhammad Yunus or the Grameen Bank? Many of you. So Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank of Bangladesh won the Nobel Prize for this kind of space of trying to provide loans to help poor people to start their own small businesses so that they could support themselves. And most people think that microfinance, or sometimes it's called microenterprise development, is about this. And it is partly about this. But what I want you to see today is that it's about more than this. That people need lump sums of money for other things as well. They they have investment opportunities for their home. Perhaps they need a roof over their head. Perhaps they need a new cooking pot. Perhaps they want to invest in their kids' education. There's other reasons that we need wads of money. Life cycle needs, like weddings and funerals. These are very expensive events. And the poor need access to big wads of money to handle this situation. And finally, emergencies. Okay? When you're facing an emergency, you're going to need some lump sum of money to handle that emergency. Now, all of us do this all the time. For us, it's not a major part of our consciousness for the most part. We go to ATM machines. We pay our, life ins- we pay our health insurance bills. I have it automatically withdrawn. I can't remember the company I'm using anymore. It's, it's kind of in the background. But if you didn't have all of those services available to you, it would move from the background to the foreground. And that's what happens in the space of finance in the majority world. Now, we're going to do a little skit here, or a little demonstration. And I've asked some people to join us. Now, I'd like you to come up right now. Not everybody's supposed to come up right now. Only if you are a saver or a borrower. And it's a little awkward because of our room here today. So so those of you, just do your best to see. Savers and borrowers come up here. And saver number one should stand right here. And here's your microphone, and you've got some money there that you need to pick up. And saver number, stand right in front of your chair facing that way. Saver number one, saver number two, three, four, and five. Our group is struggling already. We've got a Covenant College student here who can't, who can't, can't you can't read yet. Okay. And then borrower number one, borrower number one, you're a saver, you're over there. Borrower number one, two, and three. So pick up your money. Pick up your money that's behind you on your chair, and the chair is for you to sit down should you get exhausted. But the longer you can stand, the better this will work. Hint, hint, don't sit down. Now, 
just read through and ask, where we are right now is a village anywhere in the majority world of Africa, Asia, or Latin America, or a slum in an urban center, or a squatter community. And what we have here are, are a little, little uh, uh, examples of the kinds of people uh, in those communities and the kinds of reasons that they need lump sums of money. So as they read, I want you to listen for what do they need lump sums of money for and how much do they need. Go. My name is Mary. I have four children and we live in a squatter community. There's a hole in the roof of our house so the water pours through onto our beds whenever it rains. I would like to save $10 U.S. to repair our roof. My name is Sarah and I have three small children. They often get sick, but I do not have enough money to pay for the medicine. I want to save eight U.S. dollars for the next time they are sick. My name is Lois. My father is very old and sick. I believe he will die very soon, and I want to give him a proper burial. I would like to save 30 U.S. dollars to prepare for his death. My name is Mark, and I'm a fisherman, but my nets are starting to tear, so I need to save up $16 so I can get some new nets. My name is Elizabeth, and I would like to marry Mark the Fisherman. He keeps on saying that we cannot get married because we do not have enough money to pay for the wedding. I'd like to save $30 so that we can afford the wedding, and Mark will be out of excuses. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Rachel, and my child has malaria. I'm afraid she will die. My name is John, and I'm a cobbler. I need a loan of seven U.S. dollars to buy some leather. My name is Thomas, and I'm a carpenter, and I need a loan of 100 U.S. dollars to buy a new electric saw for my business. Wonderful. So now you have up in front of you a summary of what you just heard. Which of these people need lump sums of money, wads of money in excess of what's in their pocket? Which of these people need lump sums of money for business investment? Mark does, right? Thomas and John. Good. Who, ha- who needs a lump sum for household investments? Maria does. Good. Mm-hmm. What about life cycle needs? Elizabeth does. Lois does. Mm-hmm. Good. And what about emergencies? Okay, Rachel does from Larry Medicine, right? And who else? Sarah's preparing for an emergency, right? That's a very standard kind of uh, a situation in a community. Now, if there were banks available, what would banks do? How do what do banks do besides um, spend other people's money? Uh, what, 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 what do banks do? Okay, what banks do, where do they get their money from? Savers. Banks take money from savers, and then what do they do with that money? They lend to borrowers, and so they figure out who would be the good borrowers. And so there's a sense in which what banks are doing is they're lending these people's money on behalf of these people. Who wants to run around finding people to borrow your money? I don't want to do that. So what I do is I put my money in the bank, and my bank then lends it to people because they're better at lending than I am. That's what's going on. So banks take savers' money, and they lend it, and then there's one more thing they do. 
Okay, they charge interest, and they make sure it's repaid, right? Okay, the banks make sure the money's repaid so that they can cover their costs and they can pay back these savers uh, their money. We okay? That's what banks do. Unfortunately, in these communities, there typically are no banks. And if there are banks in the area at all, they typically will not take savings deposits that are this small, and they won't make loans that are this small. Banks can't serve most of these people. So what happens are two people emerge. The first is, hold your sign up so they can see it all over, okay? The first is the village loan shark. This person lives in this community. He knows who's honest and who's dishonest. He knows who he can lend money to, and he can break their legs if they don't repay. And he charges very high interest, anywhere between 120% to 1,200% a year to the poorest people in the world. There's another kind of creature that emerges as well, the savings version of this. Come on up. You could stand down on the other end and hold your sign up really high. There's also what is called a savings lady. I like to call her a savings shark. She is a trusted member of her community. Perhaps she has a gun or a Rottweiler or a Dutch husband. There's some reason that people fear her. All three. (laughs) Really? Oh. (laughs) She will go door to door and collect people's savings. She will put them in a safe place under a rock with the Rottweiler, the gun, the husband, whatever. She charges for the privilege of saving. In Nigeria, there's a savings lady who charges 80% for the privilege of saving. What I'm saying to you is, you put your money on deposit, let's say $10, and you get $2 back. Now, why would you do that? Why would you pay 80% for the privilege of saving? Louder. Anything's better than nothing. Why do you? Yeah. So to get it away from family members, excellent. To get away from family members, because 80% is really high. What does it tell you about the value of saving services if somebody's willing to pay 80% for it? They must really, we're short on time here, folks. You've got to be with me. Okay. Okay. They must really value the thing. Why? Why do they value it so badly? This is a test for four reasons. They need a wad. Why do they need a wad? Business investment, household investment, emergencies, and life cycle needs. Guys, if your child's about to die, would you pay 80% to get a lot of money to save their lives? This is what you call insurance in America. That's what insurance is. You're paying a lot out to manage the risk of that moment. Is it clear? Now, typically, we don't pay 80%, although we're maybe heading there. I mean, that, that may not, this is looking better all the time, actually. <laughs> okay. We, we pay to manage that risk. Now, 
What microfinance seeks to do is to establish banking services so that poor people can acquire lump sums of money. That's what microfinance is. It's not just lump sums for business. It's lump sums for all four of those needs. Is it clear? Because we don't want the poor to be uh, at at the mercy of loan sharks and saving sharks. That's what's going on. So, how does this work? There's a traditional credit-led approach to microfinance. This is what Muhammad Yunus began with the Grameen Bank that led to his Nobel Prize, and this is how it works. Now, we have uh, two gentlemen somewhere, one who's got MFI on them, and the other one's the donor. I think it's this table right here. If you guys could come up here, and if you could, um, if the MFI could stand, oh, for the moment, why don't you just stand over here to get these people included, and the donor could stand over there as well. Here's how it works. In credit-led microfinance, there's a donor. So the donor could be the World Bank. It could be the U.S. government. It could be United Nations. It could be uh, Bank of America. It could be your church. Don't do that one. And what the donor does is the donor takes his money and gives it to a microfinance institution, which is like a big honking bank for poor people. It's got lawyers in it. It's got accountants in it. It's got jeeps. It's got infrastructure. And what that microfinance institution does is it runs around and lends money to poor people. Historically, it has not taken people's savings deposits. It lends money to poor people primarily and historically exclusively for business loans. For business loans, for that purpose, for business loans alone. This can be a very powerful intervention, but there are some problems. Number one, MFIs, microfinance institutions, focus on business loans tending to not be able to service the other kinds of needs for lump sums that we talked about, like paying the doctor bill, something that some of you have a lot of self-interest in. MFI's loans are typically too large to reach the poorest people. Here's the deal. In order for our microfinance institution, if you're kind of sleeping, don't sleep to this part because it's really important. The most important thing is just ahead. Microfinance institutions are making loans that are not collateralized generally. There's not like a, a, a house that's going to be seized if they don't repay. And so what incentive does a borrower have to repay? Well, the primary incentive to repay is the hope that you'll be able to get a loan tomorrow. You, you take a loan and you repay it because you believe you'll get another loan tomorrow. And then if you repay that, when you get a loan after that. And so what makes you repay is the belief that you'll be able to continue to borrow. If you ever start to doubt that you can get another loan tomorrow, what are you going to do? Not repay. It's like a run on the bank. And so in order to make sure that the poor repay, the microfinance institution has to be fully financially viable. It's got to be profitable so that it'll be there over the long haul. You tracking with me? Now how do they do that? The way that a microfinance institution stays financially viable is this. 
It has to lend a honking lot of money so that when it collects the money back with interest, it can cover its costs. It can't lend a little bit. It's got to lend a lot. It's got to reach scale. It's got to be very large so that it's pumping out enough money so that enough interest is coming back to cover its overhead. Are we together? Now, because it needs to be profitable, it has a hard time getting its loan sizes super small. Here's why. Which is cheaper? Lend $100 to one person or $10 to 10 people? Is it cheaper to lend $100 to one person or $10 to 10 people? It's $100 going out the door either way. Which is cheaper? The 101 is cheaper because it's only one transaction. Lending $10 to 10 people is very expensive. All the paperwork, all that stuff, right? So it's very hard for microfinance institutions to get their loan sizes very, very small. And it tends to shoot over the heads of many poor people. Generally speaking, it's hard to get loan sizes below $50. Are we tracking? Microfinance institutions typically cannot reach rural areas where 70% of the world's poor live. It's cheaper to work in urban areas where there's higher uh, customer density than to run around the countryside where there's not enough people. If you are a Christian microfinance institution, it's going to be difficult for you to incorporate evangelism and discipleship activities because you're in the business of lending money. So I'm a loan officer, and I'm meeting with this group here. Julian here is having some problems in his marriage. I've got to lend money. Julian, God bless you. I hope you find somebody to help you out. I've got to get to the next group and lend them money. I don't have time to sit and counsel with Julian because I've got to lend money because I've got to be sustainable. Are we tracking? Okay. Now, I've got to go back. From what I told you so far, who in our village, who in our village can, will this microfinance institution minister to? Thomas. Thomas, everybody else in this village needs lump sums of money that are too small. And microfinance institutions typically will not take savings. And it won't lend for non-business activity. So the only person in this village who is served by this microfinance institution is Thomas. The rest are left, and they're stuck. Is it clear? Okay, our microfinance institution and our donor can sit down. Thomas has been well served. He can sit down. Our loan shark and our saving shark can sit down. And our saving shark can sit down. And our savers and borrowers who are very tired may sit up here. (laughs) Now, there's another approach to microfinance that's ancient and yet new. It's ancient in the sense that it goes back to at least the year 800 A.D. in Japan, maybe earlier. But it's something that the microfinance industry has only discovered in the past 15 or 20 years. It's a savings-led approach to microfinance. 
It's a different approach. And what this approach says is, rather than bring in outside money using a microfinance institution, let's help very poor people to form savings and credit associations, which can be used for them to save and lend their own money to one another. There's no outside loan capital at all. So what happens is, in the way that, I mean, you don't have to do this with the local church, but we're all about Jesus here, so you've got to be about the church. The Chalmers Center began pilot testing this about 14 years ago around the world, and we helped churches to form savings and credit associations that are owned and operated by the members themselves. The church doesn't own and operate the group. The church fosters the formation of a group. It's sort of like a very small, very primitive credit union. The poor come together and they save and lend their own money to one another. Now, there's various forms of this. I'm going to show you the simplest form first. The simplest form of a savings and credit association is called a rotating savings and credit association. A rotating savings and credit association. The abbreviation is ROSCA. It's sort of like a Polish sausage. Now let's imagine that what this group does is they decide, they decide, not the outsiders, they decide, it's participatory development, how much they want to save each week. Let's imagine these people have all decided to save $1 each. Just give me one. Don't worry about the denominations on there too much. Like, not at all. Okay, how much money do we have in our pot right now? $7. Now, what's going to happen is, in the simplest version of this, we're simply going to take turns getting the pot of money. So this week, John gets the pot of money. He has $7. Does he have the lump sum that he needs? Mm-hmm. Week two, we come back together again. We all contribute a dollar. How, how many dollars do we have? Okay, week two, Rachel gets the lump sum of money. Now, she can pay for her malaria medicine. Her child doesn't die. We just keep doing this. We go all the way through. And once we're done, we can repeat it if we want to. Seems kind of boring, huh? It's a bank. What do banks do? They take people's savings, they select borrowers, and they hold borrowers accountable. That's happening here. Think. Week one, who's getting a loan? John is getting a loan. He's showing up and he's getting $7. He contributed one. He's getting a loan of six. Who is saving on week one? Everybody else. Folks, this is a small bank. Money is going in in savings. The money is being lent to borrowers. Now, there is a third function of banks. They lend the money. What do they do? They char- Well, in this case, there's no interest charged. But what do they do? They get the money back. They hold the borrowers accountable. So what happens on week two if John doesn't return to the group? They have a come-to-Jesus meeting with Brother John. They go to his house and minister the Word of God to him, also known as church discipline. Now what will make them do that? 
It's their money. It's not other people's money. It's their money. Are we tracking? When John comes back in week two and he puts his dollar in, what is he doing? He's repaying his loans. Now, what do you see about this that's kind of bad or kind of crummy or kind of... What do you not like about what you just saw? Timing. Why? Rachel's child might have died. So, it's kind of rigid, isn't it? It's kind of rigid. The rigidity is part of what makes it work, because you don't have to think very much. But it's the downside of it. Now, the truth of the matter is, the poor are very creative. What they might do is, is um, John might sell his turn to Rachel and say, I'll let you go ahead of me. I'll switch seats with you for a little side payment. They're very creative with these things. But there's another kind of savings and credit association that one can use that's called an accumulating savings and credit association, an ASCA, an accumulating savings and credit association. And in the ASCA, what will happen is I might just fell off here. In the ASCA, what will happen is this. They will all put their money in the pot, but then they will make a decision about who to lend the money to, how much to lend to various people, and the interest rate that they will charge. And so they might come to the group meeting and, and, and they might say, okay, does anybody here need a loan? And, and John will say, I need $7 for my business. And Rachel will say, my child's about to die. I need $6 really bad. Now the group, if they believe her, might say, John, wait a week. The group makes a decision on the basis of local knowledge, asset-based participatory development. Local savings, asset-based participatory development. The group runs itself, asset-based participatory development. All the stuff we talked about last night. The group makes a decision, it lends money, and it collects it back with interest. And as that happens, the pot grows so that you can get larger and larger amounts of capital. I keep on ruining this thing here. The pot can grow. The ASCA is more complicated to run. It takes a bit more training. Advantages of this strategy, the church or the missionary never touches any money. If we were in a room full of career missionaries and I said, raise your hand if you've ever lent money to poor people, 100% hands would, 100% hands would go up. But if I said, how many of you have had a hard time getting your loans repaid? 100% of hands would go up. Missionaries are lousy lenders. So are churches. They're all about grace in the gospel. They're not good at discipline, holding people accountable. I would be a lousy money lender. There's no need for outside loan capital. The money comes from the poor themselves. This can reach the poorest people. The group members decide how much to save each week. If they're very poor, they'll save five cents a week. They attune it to their own financial capacities and needs. This can work in the rural, most rural areas. Once a church is trained out in the middle of nowhere to do this, they can do it. The local congregation members are typically in the group, and they themselves can provide the evangelism and discipleship services. This can be used as a tool by very, very, very poor churches. Any poor church in the world can do this. 
these groups are often self-replicating. What will happen is, as this group is functioning, some folks in a nearby community will say, man, look what's happening over there. Could you folks come and teach us how to do it? It's a way of equipping the local church to fulfill the Great Commission. These are Maasai women in rural Kenya. Many of you know that um, the Maasai women are are second-class citizens. In fact, one could argue that, that they're treated like cattle by their husbands. They're viewed as property. They have no voice. Female genital mutilation is part of the culture. They're cattle. This is a little church that they're standing in front of. It's, it's, it's a Maasai church in rural Kenya. And these women have come together every week to start a savings and credit association. They save and lend their own money to one another. I got a chance to, to, to visit with these ladies. I was so impressed with, with their entrepreneurship, their creativity, their dignity. They knew who they were. I asked them what their children thought of them, and they said, our kids think mommy's a rock star. It's not quite what they said. I'm kind of paraphrasing. (laughs) I said, what do your husbands think of you? Because I thought perhaps the husbands might be jealous or intimidated or threatened. And they said, our husbands didn't know who we were. Our husbands didn't know what capacities we had. Our husbands believed the lies of our tribe for generations. As they've seen who we are, They're excited and they're rejoicing. I thought to myself, these are Proverbs 31 women whose children and husbands rise up and call them blessed. Right next to these ladies is a pickup truck. And I said to them, who gave you that pickup truck? Thinking some American church must have given it to them. They said, nobody gave us a pickup truck. I said, well, how did you get it? And they said, oh. We save our money, we lend our money to one another. With those loans, we buy cattle. We raise the cattle, we sell the cattle in the marketplace, we get profits. We plow the profits back into our savings and credit association. We lend more money, we buy more cattle. We've we've made so much money, we bought a pickup truck together. We use that to transport the cattle in the marketplace. I said, well, of course. (laughs) I knew that. I'm, I'm the author of this book, and I knew that. I got to leave, and this lady said, sit down. She was kind of scary, so I sat down. (laughs) She said, I'm full-blooded Messiah. People can't believe I'm full-blooded Messiah because of what I do. But I'm not just full-blooded Messiah, I'm a born-again full-blooded Messiah. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I've been able to be productive, and to be a leader. I want to tell you what my dream is. She said, way in the interior regions, she said, we're on our road here, way in the interior regions, there are Maasai girls who don't know who they are yet. And their daddies don't know who they are yet. And I want to go and talk to those girls and talk to their daddies so that they can be just like us. Folks, the church of Jesus Christ of the 21st century doesn't look like this room. The average church member in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century looks something like this. When the local church is able to raise up cattle 
and send them out as missionaries. It's a good day at the office for the kingdom of God. No outside money. No white faces running anything. Local people, local resources, local church. More recently, people are trying to integrate various kinds of health components. When these groups meet, it's an opportunity for other stuff to happen. We're using something called microfinance with education. We are combining, in these group meetings, education and small business training, household financial literacy training, and health topics. All from a biblical worldview perspective addressing the worldview lies and animism. Real quickly, here's here's what the curriculum looks like. Foundations for business, home, and health. Facilitator's Guide for Planning a Better Business. Managing Your Business Money. Increasing Your Sales. Using Wisdom and Saving. Plan for a Better Health. Using health care services that are available to you and learning how to demand those. Preventing HIV AIDS, it's our choice. Diarrhea, it's management and prevention. Confronting malaria in our community. As I said at the beginning, microfinance can contribute to better health through reducing poverty, which improves health, offering health insurance. Some microfinance institutions that I introduced to you earlier are actually linking people to national health insurance providers. Enabling people to finance health care, helping to cushion the effects of an illness, and providing a forum for health education. All of those things can be happening. Are we together? I wanted to show you a little video clip. Uh, we, have a little, we have a field project going on right now in West Africa where, in which we're trying to get the poorest churches in West Africa to start these savings and credit associations like the ones we talked about here. We're actually charging the poorest churches on the planet to receive training in how to do this. It's not because we're mean people. It's because if I show up anywhere in the world and say, let's do X, everybody will jump and do X. It is very hard to discern what the people actually want. One way to discern what they want is to ask them to pay for it. Now, they can't pay the full cost. It's heavily subsidized. But I want them paying something as a signal that they want the thing. And because it makes our trainers over there, our indigenous trainers, accountable to the churches they're serving. Just a little video clip to show what it can look like.
That last lady that you saw there who was talking, she is just a, a member of a church there. She doesn't have any salary. She's a widow. I got to meet her this summer. And I asked her about herself. I, it took a while for the story to come out. She's a widow. And essentially, what she does in her spare time is she helps young girls who have come to their town to start these savings and credit associations, as it's one of the ways she disciples these girls. And these girls are apprentices. They've come to the town to learn how to uh, cut hair or to sew. They're apprentices. It, it, it's, it's more like indentured servants. They're not paid anything. In fact, they pay for the privilege of learning a trade, and then they work all day for their, they call them a mistress, they work all day for the mistress for free. They have no income. Their parents are supposed to send money from the rural countryside to pay their tuition and and to pay for their food, but sometimes the money doesn't come. They're highly vulnerable. And many of the girls slip into prostitution to try to survive. So this lady who just saw in the video, it took a while for the story to come out. She's kind of low-key. I had to kind of keep unpacking it with her. Finally, she said, yeah, a lot of the girls I'm ministering to are engaged in prostitution or they have boyfriends who basically support them. And I said, what happened? She said, well, they're in these groups. and It's what I used to rescue them from prostitution. And I said, do you share the gospel? She said, yeah, almost all of them have come to Christ. And I said, do you link them to the local church? She said, yes, I invite them to my church. Or if they live too far away, help them find another church. I said, how many of you led to Christ? She said, about 100. She does this in her spare time as a widow. Now, I'm going to say something really hard. She does this in her spare time as a widow, rescuing 100 young girls as a volunteer. We came, my son was with me. He's 17. We came back, and the following week, we were in my church. And we, it was missions week. And we listened to the missionaries talk. We got in the car and I said to my son, what do you think? And he said, Dad, 
I think that that one lady, that one widow over there is doing more than all these missionaries are doing. And she doesn't cost anything at all. We need to equip the people in the local church for ministry. They're the body of Christ there. Folks, we need missionaries. We do need missionaries. Hear me, we need missionaries. But our posture as missionaries and outsiders needs to become more and more backstage, putting forward the local church, because God has placed it there as the primary manifestation of Jesus Christ. We've got one minute left for questions. I do that by design because I hate answering questions. (laughs) I'm kidding. Any questions? Yeah. We're miserable to work with right now. We're such a pain in the neck. I don't know. <laughs> we're, we're going through quite a transition right now, and right now we're not very customer friendly. Okay? We really are easy if you're on the ground in Togo. We're really hard if you're in Louisville, Kentucky. We hope that uh, just after the first of the year, I hope, we're going to put a bunch of this curriculum available online for you to access. Yeah, that wasn't all you wanted to hear. Sister, we're working on it. I'm in the process of writing a book to try to get this stuff out there on a larger scale because we're short on organizational capacity. Yeah, is there interest, the lady is asking, is there interest charged? In the ROSCA, the easiest one, there's no interest charged at all. But in the ASCA, there's interest charged, yes. And the group members decide how much to charge. We encourage the groups to form an emergency fund. There's real issues here, biblical principles we don't have a lot of time to unpack. It is my view that if the person is really, really, really destitute, the charging of interest is probably a violation of some biblical principles. So we encourage the groups to develop their own emergency funds so that when, in the group's judgment, a person is really destitute, a gift can be given or an interest-free loan can be given. But we don't force it. It's the group's decision. But that, that, that was where I was going. Yeah. 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 It would it would take some time to unpack all that very 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 quickly. Uh, I don't believe the Bible forbids the charging of interest in all situations. I think there's a difference between uh, a loan at interest for business and investment purposes versus a loan to a person who is destitute. And so we encourage the groups to try to maintain that biblical, those biblical principles by giving interest-free loans or gifts to the truly destitute. But the, the, I think what you can see that video, the, the groups start to minister in all sorts of ways that are beyond the program, they start to just love each other is what happens. And ministry happens spontaneously, which is what we, will, we, what we would, of course, really want to see. Yes? How's money safeguarded? Well, in the, in the case of the ROSCA, the first one, there's no need for it. The money comes in and goes out, which is part of why it's a simple mechanism. In the ASCA, the pot can accumulate. And so uh, the bigger the pot of money gets, the more risk, right? Is it ever the case that people run off with the money? It is. 
which means the group has got to be very careful who it chooses as its members, who it chooses as its treasurer. Uh, there's amazingly little of that. There is some, but we see very little of it. Uh, there's mechanisms you can put in place, uh, three locks on the lockbox, that kind of thing. So there's things you can do, but none of it is perfectly secure. None of it is. But The group decides on its own who's a member. And so there's a sense in which the decision as to who is in the group is a decision about um, who to lend money to. The function of a loan officer in a bank is embedded in the decision of who you let into your group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are the groups primarily made up of women or do we have some with men? Uh, Yes, to both. Women tend to dominate um, the groups. I didn't mean (laughs) that that wasn't. (laughs) The majority of group membership is comprised of women, uh, but we do see uh, men interspersed, and we have some groups that are purely men. Uh, I visited one group in Kenya. It was all men, and I said, what's wrong? with? Why don't you have any women? They said, because we believe that we as men have failed in our church, and in our communities, and in our families. And so this is a support group for men to get us to overcome our weaknesses. Praise God for that one. Yeah. Yeah. How is the local pastor involved in the group? That's a great question. It's a tricky one to navigate. We don't like the pastor running the thing. We want the pastor's hands out of the money, and yet we believe that pastors have a pastoral role. And so we like it if pastors are uh, embracing of the group, perhaps coming into the group and and conducting various kinds of pastoral activities, but not running the group and definitely not holding the money. Sometimes the pastors are group members, but we heavily discourage the pastor from running the group. Keeping the pastor away from the money is important for protecting him and others. Yes. Yes. Well, that's interesting. Well, since I didn't know anything about that part of our training, I can't help you with that one. I'd have to talk to one of my colleagues. This brother was saying that uh, there, there was an example given. In, Chalmers used to conduct some distance learning courses on this. There was an example given one of the courses of nurses that were being trained. Uh, it's kind of community health kind of workers who are also involved in the microfinance piece. And this brother's asking, how is it going? I didn't know about it, so I can't tell you. So, I don't know. That's a great story, though. Thank you.
One more question. Yeah. How are the SCAs able to operate without coming under the scrutiny or attracting the attention of the government banking authorities? Yes, yeah, so this brother is asking, how are these savings and credit associations able to operate without coming under the scrutiny of governing authorities? Um, well, sometimes they can't. So the, the legislation varies by country. Some countries want to regulate them. Others don't. It varies by country. Yep. Thank you so much. Really enjoy. You're a great audience. Thank you.